0: It's October 25th, 2021, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. First one we got, Kessel Run signs first agreement implementing new software acquisition policies from FedScoop. The policy, officially titled DoD Instruction 5000.87, Operation of the Software Acquisition Pathway, allows organizations like Kessel Run to write a short capability needs statement and to start working out on designs. Previously, the Department of Defense had to follow the same process it uses to buy tanks as it does for code, a system that takes years and often results in spending money on tech that is out of date by the time it is cleared for use. So I'm pretty surprised it actually kind of took this long for them to get that that capability needs statement, you know, but um, can you go into this a little bit more? I mean, it's Kessel Run with ACC, right? Which is kind of like the, the MagCom Customer to a degree, uh, so you know you've been working in this uh, software acquisition pathway world. Can you just uh, get into the capability need statement a little bit?
1: Sure. Yeah. There's there was a little bit that was crammed together. So a couple of clarifications. One, customer runs out the first one to do a user agreement, um, which is essentially what they did here. There's a few different artifacts on the software pathway. Um, that are kind of novel to some extent. Uh, basically, they're the capability needs statement, which if it's a joint program can also be uh, a software ICD with new format. Um, if it's uh, a, a, the other one is a user agreement, which is not something that other programs haven't used, but it's more to formalize the governance process and say, these are the, the key users, the resource sponsor, um, and these are, you know, these are, this is the battle rhythm we'll get into as the program goes on here. So we'll make decisions on priorities and things like that. So yeah, the capability needs statement documents, the high level requirements, user agreement that gets all the, the user governance stuff, to, uh, articulated. And then you have, um, a new, another new one is like a value assessment. So yeah, this is not the first user agreement. We have 31 programs, software pathway programs now. Uh, so there's various ones out there. Kessel run was unique though, I will say in standing up the first portfolio uh, based user agreement. So essentially this agreement will not just be for one program. It will actually be for uh, multiple programs that Kessel Run is doing on the software pathway. So so that is a little bit unique. And so I think I think they they, they did do something novel here. And I, I think it's a best practice in, in terms of, you know, not repeating something. You don't have to you know go through the staffing on over and over again, you know, do it once. You- make sure you have the stakeholders. in. Yeah.
0: Can you break that down a little bit? So you know, Kessel Run, their main thing is AOC, but then they also have like a bunch of other small things that they're helping out other programs with. Like they're also they were working on you know F thirty five for a little bit. Is that what you mean? Like all of those different strands that they're supporting is just in one kind of portfolio requirement or capability need statement in this case.
1: Yeah, some of those, some I know I know they've reshuffled things different times, and I think they've sort of gotten uh, some of those. Uh, external type efforts um i think they've uh, offloaded some of them so these are actual things that they they own the requirements for they're managing uh and and so they're they their individual programs um they have different names chimera some of the um yeah aoc is definitely one of them and i don't remember them all off the top of my head but there's like five or six isn't that,
0: chimera the navy thing I thought that was like the digital twin for the Navy, or maybe there's multiple chimeras out there. I think there. there's multiple chimeras. There's <laughs> it's a good name,
1: right? Cyber world too. So yeah, that's a popular one. Um, yeah, so they have they have different programs that they own, but they're basically because they have similar user bases. ACC, for instance, being the resource sponsor, they can they can do some common documentation. I think this is something that DOD is well, pretty much underutilized. Where every you know this goes back to what we've talked about, Eric. Right? Program centric mentality drives you to do individual documentation for every program even if let's say within a PEO uh, a bunch of the a bunch of the documents could probably be done once right at with the the resource sponsor who in this case ACC and ACC manages a good portion of the Air Force programs from the from the resource sponsor perspective so yeah so they're being smart about it um, but uh, you know it's it is something that other programs have been doing so so it's
0: a win, but not the first. Yeah. Cool. Well, hopefully, you know, they can kind of spread those lessons and love to see more portfolio stuff going on in terms of re- requirements and, and funding. Right. So
1: yeah, hopefully that's the next step. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. The funding. And then yeah. <laughs> there also Jackie Torson was uh, talking there um, about, you know, the next step also being, how do you get to more continuous test activities rather than these discrete events?
1: Yes, yes, I saw that. And that is, yeah, that's really that's critically important too, is is um, you know, it goes same thing I was saying with the program centric approach is yeah, if you can do testing in in you know in faster cycles, maybe across, you know, different like programs, similar programs, you know, you can achieve a bunch of efficiencies and start to speed up that deployment frequency uh, uh, time. So, you know, get get capability out faster to the warfighter.
0: Army CIO's top priority is budgeting for new digital transformation strategy from C4ISRnet. Given how lengthy the budget cycles are right now we're in, uh, in the beginning of our planning and programming for POM 2024, which is our funding, our budgeting year that starts in 24, said RBCIO Raj Iyer. If we don't get our priorities there right for the programs and initiatives, then it's very hard for us to make changes given how inflexible the process is later out in the out years, he said. So I thought this one was kind of interesting just because uh the the Army CIO was just basically saying what everyone knew, you know, we're already, you know, starting to plan for fiscal year 2024, right? Um that's pretty far out. So he comes in and the first thing he's able to affect is 2024. And he's basically sitting on, you know, standing orders for 2022, which hasn't even got passed yet, but and then 2023, really, which is kind of already on its way it's in osd right so it's kind of out of his hands so you know i think that's right digital transformation probably does need uh i guess there's two ways of looking at it right one plan plan better earlier on which i think is what uh the CIO is talking about here and then the other is can you get some uh some more flexibilities which is kind of like our second part of the kessel run code right in in portfolios but any thoughts here
1: yeah, no, I mean this is <laughs> kind of kind of is everything that we've been talking about. Um, yeah, planning is actually the twenty four. Planning doesn't actually go forward into into the uh, formal budget generally, but yeah, the the, the programming piece is, is occurring for twenty three. So yeah, some of that will start to get start to get locked down. It'll be it'll be harder to change as you get further in the year, um, and once it goes to OSD in June, it'll be even tougher. So. So, yeah, they're closing in. They still have some room to figure some things out. But, yeah, his points, his points really valid. Um, One thing one thing I did take from uh, this, the article deeper in the article, though, was about, you know, I mean, I think they can. He talks about how they have to try to make it flexible. And I think, you know, this goes to the point about how you write budget docs. How you ask for things, you know, do you put things in in uh, single PEs or do you spread them out over multiple PEs where it's much harder to move, move funding around. So, I mean, I think there are internal things that can be done to make this a little bit easier, or at least try to get Congress to agree to, you know, uh, to a smart strategy. Uh, and, you know, I think they had, he actually mentioned a couple of things that I think would be really uh, useful in making the case. I mean, he talked about how this project um, would would kind of uh, solve some of the issues they had in Afghanistan where, you know, troops hit the ground and they weren't actually able to see what, uh, you know, what uh, U.S. citizens were in the area because they didn't, weren't able to get the data. So anyway, it sounded like they had some real challenges that they can articulate to the Hill and say, hey, this is why we need to do this. You know, here's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to get crazy, but we want to consolidate some of these you know, logical, similar budget line items, and we want to give ourselves flexibility to XX, you know. So I do think the services start trying to do more of that. You know, they can always get told no, but, but um, yeah, it sounds like in this case, they should probably uh, try to do something novel when they submit the 23 budget.
0: Uh, you mean the 24? I think, I think that he, what his point was is that the 23 is already out of his hands, right? It's already getting coordinated at OSD, it's gone.
1: Well, right now, the 22, the 22 budget should be, or, No, twenty-two
0: budgets on the hill, (laughs) twenty-three budgets in OSD. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, yeah, twenty-three budget. Yeah, (laughs) it'd be twenty-four. You're right.
0: And that's the crazy thing, right? We're still in in actual twenty twenty-one calendar year twenty twenty-one, but we haven't gotten to twenty twenty-two yet. (laughs) Um, This
1: year, this year twenty-two now. Yeah.
0: All right, next one. We got Senate directs NASA to choose another company to build lunar lander. Uh, report from space.com. The appropriators in the report state that NASA's HLS program is not underfunded, despite the agency's previous claims to the contrary. As shown in the report, the bill includes $24.83 billion for NASA, which is just slightly more than $24.8 billion that NASA requested, and $100 million increase in funding for HLS. Using this funding, NASA is expected to ensure redundancy and competition, including robust support for research development, testing and evaluation for no fewer than two HLS teams. This one was kind of confusing to me. I I didn't go back. I remember we were talking about earlier, they requested like 2.3 billion and they got 800 million. So I'm not really sure exactly what, you know, their appropriators are talking about here. Cause like when they talk about top line figures to NASA, that has nothing to do with what they authorized and appropriated or will appropriate for this specific program. Right, so you know, if they're giving them a hundred million more than what they requested, I'm not really sure, right? Like, did they get more than two billion in this year? Or did they not? It's not clear, um, but it seemed like NASA got a big cut, and so that's what they were kind of blaming Congress for. Uh, so I guess we'll see. You know, Dynetics and uh, Blue Origin want to play here, and SpaceX definitely lowballed them. And it doesn't look like they're going to be able. They they lost that protest, right? So. I guess just you know influencing Congress was the next best bet.
1: Yeah, it definitely seemed. I'm not entirely clear on that point either. It definitely seems though like uh, Congress thought that you know I don't know how like the the estimates went and, and how NASA decided that they didn't have enough funding for two, but it it definitely sounds like from some of the language in that in the in the budget or at least the draft appropriations that um, you know they made the quote here NASA's rhetoric. They actually used the word rhetoric of blaming Congress and this committee for the lack of resources uh, needed to support two HLS teams rings hollow. The committee added that having at least two teams provided services, using the game. It should be the end goal, but yeah, it it sounds to me like, yeah, they threw a little bit more at it, but fundamentally, they, it sounds like the appropriation the committees viewed the, the approved budget as being adequate. So yeah, probably more to this story. We don't know.
0: Yeah. I think, I think we'll, we'll find out. Uh, Yeah. It says that the agency only received 850 million for fiscal 21 um, out of the 3.3 billion request. So, so basically, and that was for 21. And I guess they're talking about 2022. So I'm not really sure exactly what NASA or what NASA requested for 2022, but it probably was under the assumption that, look, I got, you know, cut into a quarter basically of, you know, last year, I'm operating under the assumption that I'll have one. And now NASA comes or the appropriators come back and say, here's an extra 100 million, right? Add another competitor to this, which will cost more than 100 million. So there seems to, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but it seems like they're talking past each other.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's <laughs> there's there's something something <laughs> going on here that doesn't quite make sense.
0: I'm sure we'll we'll find out because this is a, a big one and I think you know na- uh, China's trying to get to the moon in, by 2030. I always have a feeling though that NASA, whatever China says is their goal in terms of years, they just overestimate that number and then that like the real internal number must be much sooner than than whatever that publicly stated number is.
1: Well, like we'll talk about with their uh, the new booster they have. Yeah, it might be coming sooner. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, let's let's just move on to that one. Uh, China announced a successful test of world's most powerful rocket engine, Newsweek. The monolithic solid rocket motor developed by a branch of Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, a state-owned contractor for the Chinese space program, is 3.5 meters in diameter and has a thrust of 500 tons, according to China's state broadcaster, CCTV. The broadcaster noted that the latest test marks the completion of a three-step process beginning in 2009. Which saw Chinese rocket engines develop from 120 tons to 200 tons, and finally 500 tons of thrust. So, yeah, there's that's a pretty steady, you know, increase there. They say it's the uh, most powerful rocket engine. I wonder if that's more than you know the Saturn V, um, but that's kind of out of commission now. I looked up uh, SpaceX's. I think like the Falcon 9. They said has about 1.5 million in thrust. Uh, and so 500 tons is more like right a, a close, approximately a million. And the, the SpaceX is more modular. So it's got like nine of those things. So, um,
1: well, the Saturn five was only 140 tons.
0: R- really? Yeah. Oh, you know, they just had, a they stacked a whole bunch of, they stacked five of them. Right.
1: I guess. Yeah. I guess the different phases, um, or booster or um, stages. Yeah.
0: Wow that's that's interesting. I mean 500 tons is pretty impressive then. So I guess we'll see what they're going to throw up there into space. Um they got a pretty sweet space station coming up. So Uh yeah, let's uh stick with with China Watch, Schrodinger's military challenges for China's military modernization ambitions from War on the Rocks. Specifically, the PLA's ongoing struggles to embrace jointness among the service branches, as well as the challenge of updating doctrine to reflect the implications of their belief in a military revolution through artificial intelligence, reveals nuances that are crucial for the broader understanding of the Chinese military. Despite its continued growth, the extent of which that the PLA can handle the less tangible side of military modernization will be vital for the Chinese military's future warfighting war capabilities. So the article kind of starts out with, oh, Chinese are making lots of progress here, there, and the other, but, you know, they were specifically um, talking mostly about this jointness um, issue that they had. And I wasn't really aware of how bad that was until recently. <laughs> like, like of like the top officer corps, like, basically none are air force. So like the air force is definitely like lowest on that totem pole there for, for China. Um, But that seems to make some sense. They're kind of like a land-based power to a degree, but um, yeah, I I don't know. I I thought it was kind of an interesting point that, you know, in terms of actual war fighting, and this is something people have been talking about a lot, right? Like we don't, we're not really sure what China can do because they haven't really been put to the test since, what. 1979 in Vietnam where they got handed to, you know, their butts handed to themselves um, by by the Vietnamese. So uh, well, they, they the Vietnamese are probably the best light infantry at that time. So it's potentially not surprising. But you know, I guess they make they make the point here. China's not 10 feet tall. And that's the thing that everyone always says, they're not 10 feet tall. Kind of hate that phrase, but um, I guess we'll see how they kind of integrate their services. There seems to be some kind of dynamic benefits to letting the services kind of go off on their own and and move faster so maybe maybe there is that kind of trade-off between like speed and coherence right um in in this kind of service inter-service rivalry
1: yeah i mean i think it's one of those things where you can acknowledge that um they, they have some challenges but you know when you think about even the um you know the u.s military after world war ii like we were not we were not exactly in the best place either but we you know when when you're pressured and you feel like you're fighting a you know existential <laughs> sort of a, sort of a, a battle or you know planning for one you you sort of you know get your stuff together right and so you know i don't think there's anything to show that you know they did they've already taken some major reforms yeah they're going to they're going to hit up against a lot of status quo things i mean the us is still dealing with that but we we did i mean i think some people have made that you know, made that point, right, that, you know, the US has been fighting wars, we, we know how to do it, we, even though we're not, we could be more joint, in many ways, we, we know how to fight together, we know how to do, have a joint force, and we have different joint force commanders for different components. And we, you know, we've learned a lot of lessons over the years. Um, I mean, I think we do have to remember that it's only been since the 80s that we really had Goldwater's nickel, which really, you know, really forced the services to work together, because, you know, Vietnam and Iran hostage situations and Somalia, you know, all showed how bad we were at that time. So, so yeah, we had to, we had to learn a lot of lessons that China just doesn't, hasn't had to learn yet, but there's nothing to say that they can't study, study our history, which they are right. They're studying the way our tactics and, and the things, uh, the things that we've done in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, so yeah, maybe they will, you know, skip some of those lessons because they, have you know, they've, they've documented so closely, you know, what some of the other nations that have been at war are doing. So yeah, nothing to say they can't, um, can't get, can't get their act together. I did think it was interesting though, about the, the AI piece. I think that's probably the more, the one that I see as more problematic, um, because they really do seem to be relying on a less, um, uh, highly trained force, right? Because they've, well, they're going to shrink. So maybe that will help actually the force get, get uh, a higher competency level, but, if they're going to rely on AI that much to do a lot of this critical decision, uh, co-development, you know, basically con ops, you know, it's going to be an AI focused con ops, then the, you know, you really could make the force uh, not as reliant on their own expertise or their own judgment. And it really could become this thing where you're like waiting for the computer to tell you what to do. And if there's a lot of bias in the system or, you know, it can't anticipate some of the you know uh, some of the tactics that might be employed. Uh, that could be a real that could be a real downside um, to being over-reliant on that. So that, that was pretty interesting. I didn't quite realize how how uh, int- I knew they were going after AI, but I didn't realize how intent they were for it to basically you know bypass a lot of human in the loop kind of stuff. So uh, I guess we'll see see more about this as as it goes on. But um, but yeah.
0: It's interesting that they had that take. I think Bob works take was the exact opposite, right? Like we have these very slow human in the loop types of decision chains where they could just like potentially just leapfrog that and, and, you know, get to the next level of it. Right. Uh, So, you know, I guess there's, there's risk and reward to any kind of strategy, um, especially with new technology. But
1: yeah, that strikes me as the, I think the, the, you know, as Putin has said, you know, whoever, like you know, whoever dominates AI will, you know, conquer the world or whatever. But I think the the way that I would maybe think about it is it's finding the right balance. The trick will be is finding the right balance between you do need AI for some of those rapid decisions that are just, you know, things are going to happen so fast during the battle that, you know, human in the loop would just slow things down and you, you would lose, you would lose something. So you need to like find the balance between that, but then also not make it so dominant that, you can't have the judgment and you know um, human human focused strategies that you know might might not uh, AI just might not be there for for some of those complicated political you know combining the the political piece with the military piece so yeah that balance might be maybe that's the maybe that's the trick and and China's going too far to the other side
0: yeah though they seem to be quite experimental I kind of wonder. You know, I doubt that they're creating some AI system that like predicts the next war, does like theater level planning type stuff, right? I, I'm sure that they're kind of starting it out in smaller, more targeted areas, and then they'll grow it, right? So, I think you know when when you get to those higher level planning things, where jointness, right, actually seems to matter more. I, I think you're kind of losing the realm of AI ML, at least where they're at right now, um, to kind of be able to synthesize you know, a lot of that kind of contextual and qualitative information. Uh, but it will be very useful for specific actions at, you know, kind of like a tactical, potentially operational level.
1: Well, actually, one of the things they mentioned in there that actually made me think about some of the challenges on our side is the idea that there was going to be a lot of centralization, you know, even if it's not centralized all because of technology centralized because of the, the command and control structure and and they were saying, you know, that the challenges that, that the PLA has with mission command. Well, I think there's been some really good articles recently about the US challenges with mission command and how, you know, throughout Iraq and Afghanistan wars, it was basically, you know, a CENTCOM commander sitting back there making all the decisions, you know, some very, very low level decisions and everything had to go back to the chaos. And so it was also very centralized. So maybe we're not that much better at non-centralized decision making, but Yeah, but there was
0: interesting. Yeah, but there, I mean, that's definitely true. I think one of the things though is AI is a centralizing force, whereas I guess crypto is a is a decentralizing force. And you know, can those two things come in tandem in the United States? I tend to wonder. You know, with the centralization, I think that's that's kind of a problem as you kind of aggregate higher and higher, right? And I think that's. Where you kind of want the federated approach, and for a war on terror, you know potentially there's not too much cognitive overload. You know, people at the top can use those information systems to make those decisions. But like when you get into you know a near-peer conflict, there's just going to be way too much going on at the same time. So um, I wonder what the the decentralizing power will be. I, I think you know one of the issues is going to be networks are going to be very easy to be attacked, right? Um, and these things will degrade in those types of environments. So how do you, I guess, like secure those things? You're going you're gonna to have to accept inefficiency um, kind of and decentralization in order to promote the redundancy and I guess overall resilience of the force because you don't want to just to kind of topple, uh, you know, from a, from a few quick actions.
1: Well, this goes to the whole, you know, John Boyd's, you know, focus on, you know, he critiqued the army's, you know. Um, policy of synchronization, which I think, you know, he kind of called out even in the first Iraq war that there were points in the war where they could have, we could have easily gotten the Republican guard, Iraqi Republican guard. And because of synchronization, the army would actually wait for slower units to catch up. and, And by virtue of that, they basically lost out on kind of, you know, keeping the Iraqi Republican guard from escaping. And um, a lot of that was around synchronization and that, that policy or that, I don't want to say policy, that doctrine is still very vibrant in the, in the army today, synchronization, everything needs to be synchronized, everything needs to, you know, be thought out and, you know, there needs to be, you know, orders issued and stuff. So, yeah, I do think we still have a lot of, a lot of progress to make on that front too about like, yeah, actually, okay, trust your, trust your commanders on the front lines that you've given them. You're giving them the information they need and you've trained them well enough to make good decisions and let them go, you know, achieve the objectives that they've been given, you know, but yeah.
0: Yeah. It just seemed that, you know, a lot of that savings from Iraq, Afghanistan these days should kind of be just pumped right back into realistic training, you know, so that when you get to that point, you're not just kind of like Stalin was in World War II, just like who are the guys that are actually surviving and not dying, right? And then I'll promote them. Like you don't want to get it to that point. You want, you want to know who are the leaders and right and delegate those decisions sooner.
1: Well, I mean, that's a good point though. It's like you, a lot of probably how, how successful China will be is what people they promote, right? The people that are generals right now are probably not going to be that effective in this new paradigm because they're, you know, they've been trained for so long and maybe the colonels and lieutenant colonels are probably not the right people, but, how they promote, how they decide to promote the captains and majors that are coming up through this PLA, especially through the joint force, will probably decide how effective this is, right? Because those are the folks that will be creating those new doctrines or at least, you know, executing those new doctrines. They're going to be the ones that, you know, will have to make, um, you know, decisions like will you promote the people who are just the party line? Uh, You know, we do what the general tells us, or do you promote the more rebels who, are thinking outside the box and doing, you know, coming up with novel ways of doing it. So, yeah, I think that'll probably be interesting as we probably never really know, but what, what cadre, what cadre moves into the top ranks and how that decision, how that, how those promotion decisions are made will probably have a big impact.
0: Yeah. It would seem that um, I guess, you know, the older guys, they kind of grew up in a different time. Right. But if you, if you're talking about these majors or stuff like that, Well, they pretty much grew up in this uh, kind of recent WTO era where China had like this amazing acceleration of growth. And they're probably more optimistic and kind of like a different bunch of people than, you know, those born during the Cultural Revolution. And that could have a substantial, you know, impact. But I guess it also depends on what happens here in the next couple of years, because it looks like, you know, the Chinese government is kind of cracking back down a little bit on some of that economic freedom. Um, and what that kind of means in terms of culture and, and, you know, people's outlook and their ability to, you know, express themselves might be, you know, tied to that.
1: Yep. Good point.
0: So last one on the China watch, China hypersonic, uh, Chinese hypersonic vehicle test, a significant demonstration of space technology from Space News. Uh, so here they're comparing it to kind of American vehicles. The X-37 is not a highly maneuverable space vehicle, Bakos noted. NASA's space shuttle glided back from space, almost like a rock, basically gliding down in very steep, very steeply and plopping on the runway. According to media reports on China's tests, the vehicle was able to maneuver when it returned from space into the atmosphere and be more aggressive in terms of uh, its cross range, he said. That would be new in terms of technology. So my layman's understanding here is <laughs> that they had a hypersonic glide vehicle um, rather than like a classic ICBM and it went around the world, um, not actually in space because I believe it was air breathing and it was able to re-enter at high speeds and maneuver. So that's the the kinds of new new things going on. Anything you you got out of that one?
1: Yeah, yeah, I thought I thought this was maybe one where you know, not knowing all the details, but uh, maybe one where it was like it was it was flying in that uh, near space environment, you know, just kind of on the edge of there, kind of like the uh, the Bezos uh, Bezos you know uh, um, a flight there that they did with um, with uh, civilians and stuff. So yeah, you know, maybe maybe it was uh, it was sort of you know quasi a quasi uh, ballistic missile, but. You know, it is, it is substantial though, the fact that, you know, reentry and the ability to, uh, to have maneuverable surfaces, given the the temperatures and the stresses, um, if it really can maneuver, if it, if it's as advertised here, uh, it could, that could represent a, a fairly significant advancement. So, uh, so yeah, no, that's something that I think we'll probably have to keep an eye on and see, you know, how much of this is hype, how much of it is, is, uh, is for real, but, um. But
0: yeah. Yeah. It seemed like some people were just like, well, we can't even stop an ICBM. So like, this is great and all, but like, <laughs> you know, what what's it adding? Uh, I guess, you know, because yeah. it's not like they're going to be able to direct that thing at a, uh, a carrier or even a specific like, you know, warehouse or, you know, some kind of base. Right. Like it seemed like they, they said the range was like 20 mile. You can get somewhere within 20 miles. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's not, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, you know, technological thing, but I guess for right now, it doesn't seem to have a huge, I guess, operational or strategic impact, but that's the thing about it, right? Like they're going to keep pushing on these, on this front. And so who knows like what that turns into, um, some years from now.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're, we're doing, we have a lot of same challenges. So, so this will be, you know, this is going to be one of those, I think, tit for tad, like you know we're gonna make some advances we're gonna make some advances and russia will probably make some advances and it'll just be one of those things where we're constantly just like we did with nukes right we're gonna constantly be coming up with countermeasures and fighting you know trying to advance the next tech technology so we have an edge and yeah you know, back and forth for the next hundred years.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh is so the next one we got here I'm not even gonna read it because there cause it's just hard to find like any kind of coherent quote out of this, but it's the new shakeup coming to space force acquisition for breaking defense. And this has to do with the um, assistant secretary of the air force for space policy, which I guess is called space acquisition integration. Could you like summarize what's going on here? Like what, what was this all about? It was kind of confusing to me because they were kind of using a bunch of terms that wasn't clear.
1: Yeah. So they stood, there was this, um, space acquisition integration office, which was essentially sort of a a placeholder until they they could they could get a a civilian in there to be the new space acquisition executive. So um, I don't know if that was ever really intended to uh, to last forever um, because, you know, Space Force was being stood up. There was, you know, they were really waiting for this, whoever the person was to come into that role to really shape it. Um, And so. Policy, though, was, as I understand it here, was was integrated into that office. And so the and um, that office. So when you when you think about the secretary, that staff when something says staff that falls under the secretary, right? When you have something that's U.S. Air Force or U.S. Space Force that falls under the under the chief. And so not that the secretary, right, is it's a political position. They have a lot of power. Of course, they can somewhat influence things on on the Air Force side, but it's a little bit easier when it's in their, their office. So as I understand this, it seems like they basically sort of decided to take the policy piece out, push that to Space Force, so that will be under the uh, uh, under the Chief of Space Ops, and then you know the the Space Acquisition Integration will now become you know SQ, which models saf AQ, and that's you know where the acquisition executive uh, will sit. One of the weird things is definitely the fact that they put a military officer in that role. Uh, given that Sean Barnes was already there, quite odd that uh, that you would put a military person in that role.
0: Wait, um, SAF SQ? It was a military person to replace Sean Barnes?
1: Yeah. That's what, that's that's what I took out of here is that they put General Whitney as the um, basically kind of placeholder until, uh, until they could get um, – the, uh, the new the new SAE in there. Yes, yeah, so Sean Barnes uh, had been serving as the de facto head of the Assistant Office Secretary of the Air Force for Space and Acquisition Integration, um, will now be the Director of Air Force Financial Management Liaison. So they're moving him to SAF-LL, uh, basically the congressional place. And he has been effectively replaced by Brigadier General Steve Whitney, who's been serving as the Director of Space Programs uh, in SAF-AQ. And so General Whitney will now come over and be Staff uh, SQ as I, I've as
0: never I, I've never heard of that like, that kind of like arrangement where you put a military guy into like what is quintessentially a civilian job.
1: Yeah, that's what some of the folks, um, which I think were some of them were good comments. I, I don't agree with the one of the comments was Congress can hold political appointees accountable, not so much with uniformed officers. Uh, I definitely don't agree with that. I mean, Congress can hold up promotions; they can, uh, you know, they can screw around with retirements and stuff. So. I yeah, I don't think that's I mean, sometimes political appointees have a lot less to lose. Than yeah. People. I
0: mean, I'm not really that worried about that. It just seems yeah. like why did, why make that kind of transition to that individual when you could just like stick a civilian in there? And, you know, because like a civilian's going to be there eventually. So
1: yeah, why Sean Barnes got moved, I don't think we'll, we'll know. Um, but it sounds like from the way that this article was written, that there was some negotiation between the Air the Space Force leadership and the Secretary, and essentially the Secretary got to keep the funding piece and the policy piece uh, went to uh, Space Force. And, you know, some of the folks that were quoted here basically said, you know, that's probably not the best, was probably not the best idea, probably a mistake. Um, I, <laughs> one of the things here that I thought was really funny, <laughs> is as a formal, former DOD official wrote The Space Force is going really fast. I'm not sure where they're going or what they're measuring to suggest they're going fast. But that's what I hear. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I had a lot of chuckle on that one. Um, But yeah, no, I think it is strange. And hopefully, um, I mean, I think Congress has been very clear about they want a civilian in there. So uh, I would expect I would expect Secretary Kendall to nominate somebody very soon. I think they have a short list and they're probably moving quick on getting that person nominated. So,
0: yeah, we'll see when uh, Andrew Hunter gets uh, yeah. approved, right? I, I can't imagine that he won't get approved, but it's still taking, taking some time. Uh, some time. <laughs> uh, so rapid pulse laser weapons could be the Pentagon's future edge from breaking defense. Defense leaders are increasingly interested in ultra short pulse lasers unimaginably high powered beams fired for a, fract- a tiny fraction of a second to vaporize a small portion of a target surface or disrupt its, disrupt its electronics while national funding for ultra short pulse lasers has been steadily increasing in Europe and Asia budgets have been flat or declining in the United States the Pentagon's 2022 budget request would decrease funding for directed energy research from roughly 1.2 billion this year to 915 million the next so I thought this one was uh, just kind of uh, interesting, you know, like ultra short pulse lasers. One of the things that they said there that was even more interesting to me was that it like carterizes essentially so fast that it can actually like, you know, I guess like if it hits an aircraft, then it won't actually disrupt the aircraft because it will like carterize where it hit. And then so the aircraft is completely fine. Uh, so they have to like kind of figure out how to get over that little hump. Uh, but overall interesting
1: right yeah like weird Is like creates a shield after the first hit or something
0: (laughs) yeah uh which which sounds weird but you know it seems to make sense ultra short pulse lasers because like energy like generation is such a um power drain and all that kind of stuff but um you know this is one of those things that seems to be in our future right like it's 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 always in the future.
1: Yeah, I love that quote that they do. I've heard that before. On, I, I've heard that used on other things too. But yeah, it's an old joke in defense circles that laser weapons are the technology of the future and always will be. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, funny.
0: this is one of the things that the the venture community always says. I think this is like a Mark Andreessen line. It's like there are no wrong ideas. There's only the wrong timing. And it's like, yeah, because you know, AI, ML had like tons of winters and then you know, springs and then it go back to winter and and now it seems like we kind of like bridged that potentially, like even if it does kind of hit an AI winter, it's really like, well, you've kind of proven a lot of use cases. Right. And, and so maybe it doesn't live up to everything. So, you know, maybe la- like lasers and the railgun and stuff like this, it's just like the wrong time, but the, but the right fundamental concept. And who knows when that like little breakthrough could occur, you know, maybe it could be tomorrow. It could be 10, 20, 50 years, who knows. Um, but it seems like you know it's worthy of at least some investment because who else is going to do it if not the Pentagon?
1: Yeah, I mean the 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 other thing I mean about lasers, I'm pretty I'm pretty bullish on it being a real military weapon, but just I just think there's a lot of so many challenges with it. But but yeah, it definitely though it has other applications, right? I mean in you know in science, scientific circles and research, uh, lasers are used for all sorts of things, which is probably why. Uh, Europe is is investing in, it's probably not for military applications, but so, yeah. So if we don't necessarily deploy it into a fighter jet in the near future, uh, it probably will benefit us in other areas. So, Um, so yeah, worth keeping some, worth keeping some budget going there, but.
0: Army's 22 billion mixed reality goggles gets a DOD IG audit from army times. Those cause a screen. So there's something called the screen door effect in some of the headset Meaning that the image resolution had a gridded view. The problem was attributed to moisture getting into sensitive areas of the device. The other issue was one regarding field of view. A 40 degree field of view has been standard for most current fielded mixed reality night vision devices, uh, but IVAS program sought to double that to 80 degree field of view. So it wasn't like there was also that discussion that um, IVAS was going to actually delay until later in 2022, it's kind of final testing. But I was kind of intrigued, like why the DOD IG decided to audit this program. And they kind of just brought up a couple small mundane things, right? Like, um, oh, the field of view didn't reach what they wanted to get, but that doesn't mean it wasn't working, right? (laughs) Like, And that's something that they could probably work out over time, 40 degree, probably still has some military utility. I'm sure if you talk to a soldier and they said, Forty degree or or nothing. They they might just say, "Well, I'll take the forty degree for now." <laughs> right? Maybe I, I wonder to what degree it's also like you put it on everybody, or like if they don't meet all the requirements, maybe you have kind of like a mix of certain folks that have it, certain that don't. Until it, until it can do all of those things, but it feels to me like this is just one of those instances where you know you have an ambitious program, tons of things going on. You're not going to meet all of them in the first try. Uh, but, you know, oversight wants you to and they will look for anything to kind of bring the hammer down and potentially maybe they're unusual, you know, middle tier plus. Uh, plus other transactions, and then they're going into a big production contract with that. Maybe that kind of, you know, caught the ire of the the IG to go take a look. But, you know, IG put out a good report on MTA a, a month ago or so. So maybe they'll they're This is kind of a you know, they're not, they're not after the program per se. They're, they're just kind of looking into it, but we'll see. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, the IG can, uh, you know, if they see an area and, and I, I I think the attention, I mean, if you read the NDAs, I think there was even something in the appropriations bill, uh, a lot of attention on IBAS from, from the Hill. And so they, they, they have the ability to do subject audits and just say, Hey, we're going to dig into this because it's getting a lot of attention. And, um, you know, they probably want to make sure that, it's it's being done it's being done in accordance with the processes that you know the army has and such so so yeah it'll be interesting to see what they come up with but i mean this doesn't surprise me a lot i mean with f-35 it kind of brings back um the the whole issue we had with um the helmet and green glow so you know basically pilots were wearing this very complex helmet with you know basically magnets all over it that would as you moved, you know, the the system knew where the pilot's head was. So if it turned left, there'd be cameras that could show the pilot what was going on at the left side of the aircraft. So, you know, I mean, it was a, it was a complicated piece of equipment and it was supposed to have present a lot of information, uh, you know, inside the, inside the helmet, almost sort of like a 3d kind of thing. And, um, and there was a green glow and that green glow was, was so annoying. And so, um, persistent that the the pilots just couldn't couldn't deal with it. They couldn't see the symbology right. It, it was like a, it was kind of a, um, you know, it was a real hindrance to them. So, so that was a problem. So I'm not entirely surprised that something like this, that's, you know, it's meant for combat, but it's a commercial device um, is gonna have these types of issues. It's, you know, when you stick it in the mud, you know, it's probably gonna have issues you didn't anticipate if you were using it in your living room. Um, yeah, interesting about the 40 and 80 degree view, it sounds like the sounds like they went pretty heavy on the 80 degree view and it's distorted. So yeah, they'll they'll have to work through that. Maybe they shrink it down to 60 degrees and compromise do some kind of compromise or something. But um yeah, I think you had to expect this once this, once these devices started getting fielded to a broader, um, you know, broader range of the army. You had to you had to expect some of this.
0: Yeah, I guess it's my Opinion that like something like this is going to be in in the offing pretty soon, right? Like it's going to happen, <laughs> right? Whether or not the, the the DoD is on it, like that technology is going to advance and it's just going to be uh, an available capability at some point. And if you just kind of like, oh well, I didn't get the hundred percent solution right now, so let's just not do it. Like that seems pretty pretty backwards thinking to me, uh, but. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, we'll see um, what happens with it. This will be one that's probably going to be on our radar for quite some time. (laughs) Um, But it could be an important program and uh, lots of things going on. And last one we'll end on here. Army envisions global 3D terrain map as future PNT aid for operations, breaking defense. The Army's ambitious one world terrain high fidelity 3d map of the globe for training is increasingly becoming eyed by operators as a future tool for positioning navigation and timing in gps denied environments according to senior army officials the idea would be for army vehicles to be uploaded with theater relevant 3d maps generated by owt prior to deployment uh this one just seemed kind of obvious to me i you know why do you need like real time i guess it's like where are you within that map but like you should always like there's no, I can download a map of pretty much anywhere on Google, right, <laughs> to my phone and I can operate it without, you know, any connectivity. So um, I'm not sure if it actually tracks where you are in there though. I don't think it does. So I wonder how they're, they're going to solve that one. But, you know, it seems like it makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think I think they actually do have sensors integrated with it where it uh, it does some of the terrain. Um, I think it, I think it identifies, I don't know what level of precision, but it sounds like sounded like it identifies, you know, where you're at based on the um, uh, terrain and some other, maybe some other features it, that, it, that it has as part of the system. So, yeah, because it said, yeah, it said, uh, think about the GPS environment when these vehicles need to get from point A to point B. If they have one world terrain data set loaded and they have cameras, which these vehicles are outfitted with. Then they can do land navigation, dead reckoning along the way, and they no longer need GPS. So it sounds like there's like a combination, maybe of things that that you can do to kind of keep track as you're making progress. But yeah, pretty cool. We need to think outside the box on this because yeah, if you're completely relying on GPS, it puts you in a, yeah. a potential danger situation.
0: It's interesting on the dead reckoning. I guess it's one of those things like it'll get you to the fight, but you can't you can't do that forever. You're just gonna those those errors are just going to add up quite quite highly over time
1: yeah i mean that's that that's a really good point too is if this um if these units are deploying with you know long-range fires or something like that they they, they will need uh, a target solution that you know they probably will need um high precision data so they'll they'll have to find a way to uh, uh to get that before they would probably do some kind of long fires mm-hmm. launch yeah
0: I always wonder what, how like how many problems can you actually solve with just like brute force to a degree? You know, like could you, uh, for example, like could China just like put out a whole bunch of drones and this use computer vision to like see a stealth aircraft or something coming in? Right. Like there's probably like so many just like brute force ways of getting getting across some of these challenges of time and place that used to, um, you know be devil, I guess, past
1: military people. Yeah, you know what would be cool is if you had uh if you had a bunch of drones and their only their only goal was to go get a target solution. And so they just flew really, really low. They went into enemy territory using the enemies and they were basically like you, you basically use the enemy's positioning system. You get the lock and then you you send it back <laughs> like you know like yeah like hack basically hack the enemy's whatever positioning system they're using. Hack that and you know uh, send back send back the uh send back the target information or bring it back you know for the for the mission <laughs> so, but you mean yeah. just
0: like where are all blue units and now i know where your units are yeah now
1: i know where your units are and i have i got a position because i was using your technology um in an area where it wasn't denied maybe uh, i don't know how i don't know that's one thing i don't know how precise like we always had on gps we always had um selective availability, which um, I think the president only turned off once uh, back in the eighties or something. And then they, the president agreed never to do it again. And they signed an the executive order and stuff. So, but we do have the ability to turn GPS off and there are the GPS three, there is some ability to do spot beam and things like that um, where you can deny certain areas and make sure that you have good, 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 um, good tracking and you know, an area where your friendly forces are. But I don't know, like, with Beidou ba- ba- Baidu, Baidu, or, um, or the Glasnos. I don't know if uh, the Russians... Oh, Baidu. yeah. Baidu, yeah. I don't know if the Russians and Chinese have something like that. Like, if we have a chip, I never really thought about this, but if we have uh, um, Baidu chips or GLONASS Glo- uh, chips, can we, can we use those? And just, you know, I mean, for some of our systems, you wouldn't want to do that, um, but, you know... Could you use that for some of this, uh, you know, land navigation in particular, or you know, maybe maybe some other missions? Maybe not quite like missile launch, but maybe some other missions you could do that. I don't know. I don't know if someone's. I'm sure someone's thought about that, but yeah, it's it
0: looks like there's a bunch of P, you know alternative PNT stuff going on that if you just look at the budget docs, you wouldn't necessarily be able to find it. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, cool stuff. I, I'm I'm still stoked on the magnetic. Uh, mapping tool because <laughs> that one actually I think you can be pretty precise with that. You'll know always where you are. So yeah, um, but we'll see. Cool. <laughs> all right, well that's all we got this week. Thanks, Matt, and we'll talk to you next time.
1: Thanks, sir.
0: This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.